and welcome to The Happy Writer. This is a podcast that aims to bring readers more books to enjoy and to help authors find more joy in their writing. I am your host, Marissa Meyer. Thank you so much for joining me today. One thing that has been making me happy this week is that a while ago, my aunt sent me a care package while we were stuck here in quarantine, and in it was a package of Wicked Wolf coffee. Uh, And I am not much of a coffee connoisseur. Um, However, it has been delicious coffee, and the packaging has a super cute little red riding hood theme to it. So it makes me happy every time I am scooping out of the bag and making our morning coffee. Um, So fairy tale fans, definitely check it out because the packaging is really super cool. Uh, I am also so happy to be talking to today's guest. She is the author of four young adult paranormal fantasies, which are Hold Me Closer Necromancer, Necromancing the Stone, Firebug, and Pyromantic. Her new book, a fairy tale inspired fantasy titled Curses, comes out in 2021. She is also a very good friend of mine, and I miss her face so much, Uh, so I'm glad that we at least get to talk to each other over the magic of Zoom. Please welcome Lish McBride. Hello. Hello. Um, I have to tell you, so that that coffee, I actually had a Wicked Wolf t-shirt and mug for a while. Like, that's how much of a nerd I am for that design. Like, it's... Not to continue to plug that coffee, but it's it's really good. <laughs> I didn't even know there was merchandise involved. Oh yeah, you can get. Uh, we have uh, they used to have portable mugs, but they also um, I think have regular ones and shirts and postcards because we've been ordering from them on the pandemic. Because I like I like their Wicked Wolf, but I also like they have a a bear one that's really good. Is it also fairy tale themed? Um, not all of it. They definitely have different designs. The The bear, I think, kind of is. They have, like, the bear and the wolf is part of, like, their animal line. And then they have things like resurre- Resurrection Blend and stuff like that. And so, oh, okay. <laughs> this coffee brand, it has the animal line. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you remember, like, I worked in coffee for, oh, gosh, uh, probably, like, eight years. I was a barista. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I know. Uh, and I hated coffee when I started, and now um, I will murder someone if I don't have it in the morning. So that's that's where we're at. Yeah, yeah, no. The I'm not like super addicted. Like I pretty much only have one cup a day. Um, but it's like my favorite time of the day, sitting when things are peaceful and quiet, and my kids haven't woken up yet, and to sit and have that first cup of coffee um, with my husband and and just kind of ease into our day. It is it is my favorite time of the day. So I don't know what I'd do without it. It's good. Yeah. I miss you. What have you been up to? Oh, um, well, we've been trying to stay sane. We're like, we have a yard, which is really helpful. And um, my husband processes my building stuff. So I'm not, since we've been in lockdown, he has built a new table for our TV, uh, a bench, a fire pit, two um, planting beds for me, a climbing wall for smalls. Um, some decorative stuff. Like, I mean, I, I've actually lost track of all the stuff that he's built. So the one nice thing he also did, was, uh, I don't have an office. So when I'm working at home, it's kind of hard to work at home when everyone else is also home. And so he cleared out a spot in his shop for me to write. Um, and it's very much like I've seen your writing space, which I feel like is very much you. 
and this one, it looks like someone's going to get murdered in here. We, we, started calling, <laughs> we started calling it the murder shack. And I mean, it's sort of like a half a shop space with things he's held, held on to for his craft projects. So there's like fake bones in here. There's a gas mask. There's weird like old rust farm tools. Like it definitely looks sketchy. Um, but I also, I, I kind of love it. He also, he hung up some bird feeders for me so I can look at birds while I'm trying to figure <laughs> stuff out. In the so You are a multi-layered human being, Lish. I am. I am an onion. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's really nice because like it, it means that like, even though it's really hard, I think, to create during times like these, um, I have a space where it's, it's made a lot easier. So I've actually been able to work on things and get writing done. Every day, there's certain some days that I've had to sort of tap out. But yeah, I did actually. I wanted to talk to you about that because I know before all of this happened, um, you know, you and I used to get together all the time and had lots of writing dates, and we've been on retreats together. And now we're we're both kind of as with so many writers um, in the same boat, where we're stuck at home and can't go and enjoy the cafes and the restaurants and get work done and. You have a teenager at home. You have a young kid at home. Uh, so, and you mentioned yet that you've managed to get some work done every day. How has this whole situation kind of changed how you've had to think about working? It's um, well, it's one nice thing I will say that um, even though you know Smalls is five and has a hard time understanding what I do and what's happening, um, the rest of my family is really good about. Like it's a job, it's it's prioritized. So if I say like I'm gonna go work now, they do they do fairly well leaving me alone. But yeah, I used to go, I used to leave the house all the time and go meet writers a couple of week to try to keep being productive and on it. And so the I've had to basically find a new kind of a new routine because I think sometimes a lot of time with writing, there's almost a muscle memory to it where you get used to your patterns and go like, okay, you know, when I sit down. And do this, this means writing time. I think, and every writer I've talked to is different. One friend, it's like she would light a certain candle and get like a scent thing going on. Like Jessica Brody says she used to go to a cafe and then like when her laptop would die, like that was her writing time. It was like three hours before that would happen. Um, That battery life, the fickle battery life. It was years ago. But I basically like, we set up a separate space. I got a a new chair and new um noise canceling headphones to kind of help out because for me that's that's more of a trigger if i put on my headphones that means we're working and so it's like it's it's almost like an ingrained kind of pavlovian response at this point and Mm so um i won't even necessarily have them on playing anything but just having on means that and it it gives my family a visual signal that i am working and so um that's helped a lot the other thing i think that has helped is I do have some experience trying to be productive during, during really terrible things. Like I was going to um, graduate school during Katrina and like, I think I was in, I, I had my first, I had my first writing workout class and then we had to evacuate. And mm-hmm. so I was evacuated and we were, we went to school online. And so I was still having to turn in short stories and things, but also like deal with the fact that we were randomly in this, town in Mississippi that we didn't know anybody. We lost all of our stuff. You know, 
I wasn't seeing my husband or my roommates for months or like weeks or months because they would go and work down on the coast and I was home with a, with a toddler and trying to get work done. And so when you've gone through something that's like that, you do learn some things about how you create and how, how you personally deal with things. So there are days where, where I know I'm not going to be able to focus and get work done. And I think learning to give yourself that slack going like, it's okay. Like you've got a lot of other stuff going on. Some days writing isn't going to just isn't going to happen. And then the other day figuring out when you can sit down and be like, okay, well it's hard, but I'm going to make it work. Mm-hmm. I think learning your own, you know, what your threshold is for that. And so I think it, it's weird, but I think that did help sort of train me for this a little bit. Yeah. And no, kind of built up that resilience. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that, I mean, I feel like you're one of the the more resilient writers that I know, just kind of knowing all of the, like, the things that you've been through over the years. Um, and I, I know I really admire that and the way that you continue to create and continue to tap into your stories. Um, what are some of the things that you feel have kind of motivated you to stick with it over all these years? You know, I'm not really... I'm not really sure. I think, I think there is a component of just sheer pigheadedness, honestly. (laughs) So you. No, I think there's, I make a lot of jokes about, about writing out of spite, but I do think, I do think there's something to it when, um, when you're young and you want to create something, there's a lot of people that tell no, they say you can't do that or, you know, this isn't going to work or, you know, all the, all the things that you have to kind of go through. And I learned early that if this was important to me, then I was just going to have to go, okay, well, that's nice. And I hear you, but also I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think um, there is elements of that. You know, I make, I make a lot of jokes too about being a human cat. There's also this, I've always made up stories. And if I'm not, I've noticed during the times where I'm, if I'm not writing, like if a couple of weeks go by and I've not written anything, I get really grouchy. Like yeah. I, I honestly become very difficult to deal with and which is, is not fair to my family at all. Um, it's, I think that even if, even if I wasn't published, I do think I would still be writing just because it, I don't know. It, it does something in my brain where it helps, it helps me kind of get rid of some of the more anxious or negative emotions. Um, and I mean, I write, funny books and so most of it is just me trying to make myself laugh which mm-hmm. I think there's some payoff there but I honestly I do think a lot of creation comes down to being stubborn <laughs> because, yeah I mean it's like this is what I want to do I mean how many people told you that like oh that's cute that you want to be a writer and all but like what is your real job going to be like how yeah, many times no, you definitely that? hear that and I was lucky I had a family that was very supportive of my dream to be a writer Um, but I do like one of my, the, one of the memories that kind of sticks out to me was, um, a teacher who in passing kind of referred to me as, oh, that girl who fancies herself a writer. Um, and I, that has always stuck with me and I know exactly what you're talking about that, that feeling inside, like, oh, I will prove to you that I am a writer. I will make you eat those words. Um, so there's definitely a part of that. I get it for sure. That's a terrible thing to tell a student. By the I way. know. And I'm sure she thought it would never get back to me. Um, but a friend of mine just happened to overhear it. And yeah, but it's, oh, know, well, like I, look at me now. <laughs> I said, there's some spite. There's, I mean, not a mean kind of way, but there's like, I, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to do it. And I think I had a, 
I had a 10th grade English teacher who was really lovely. I mean, she was really very supportive um, and took me aside early on into the year and basically said like, look, I can't teach you on the curriculum that we have. You're too far ahead. And so she did all these kinds of things to try to like nurture that. She set up like a teen writing workshop for me to lead. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome though. Yeah, but it was really, yeah. Other kids that wanted to write. And um, she basically created a whole new book list for me and gave me one of the, the most like backhanded compliments. Like I don't think she meant it terribly but one day we were talking and she said look there are people that are good writers and there are people that can write for a living and I think you can write for a living and I was like, <laughs> um I mean so I'm not good I can't yeah but like yeah, we're actually I mean, are they mutually exclusive or <laughs> um but we're actually I'm still friends with her on Facebook uh she's really just a lovely human and was very supportive and when I, I told her um after my first book got published I said hey uh, just so you know, I, I didn't die in a ditch because like I sort of disappeared from high school. Um, but I was like, I, I did fine. And I, I got my education and I have a book coming, I had a book come out and she was just really, I mean, the response I got back from was like, that makes sense to me. Um, so you were a very successful, you know, high schooler and I assumed you'd be a successful and wonderful adult and I'm so proud of you. And it was a really nice, really nice response. But yeah. Definitely. Some teachers are like, that's cute kid, but what's your day job going to be? Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, I had a number of teachers who, who were encouraging. Um, but I remember one in particular who, you know, I'm not sure how she heard about me and my books when I was getting published, but ended up coming to one of my launch parties. Um, and it was a very brief interaction cause I had things to do and books to sign. Um, but just like the pride in her voice or in, in, in her face when she came up to the signing table, you know, was one of those, those special moments in my career. So yeah. Hi, Mrs. Koval, if you're out there listening to this. <laughs> um, so I wanted to take some time to reminisce about the first time that you and I ever met, um, because I think it's kind of a funny story and something that a lot of uh, maybe new authors might appreciate. The first time that we ever met was at a book signing. We were supposed to be doing a book signing together uh, in Seattle, where we both live near Seattle. Um, and it was like, we get there, it was at the middle of a Saturday afternoon. And it was the first truly sunny, beautiful day that Seattle had had that year. And exactly zero people showed up to our event. Yeah, it was Elliott Bay was reopening their children's section. They just moved. And uh, my the one person did show up. My friend Crystal showed up. Oh, but, your friend! Like, we yeah. had a friend come yeah. to see you. <laughs> it was great. We got it. Um, yeah, no, it was. It's funny because like, when I tell people that my one truly no show event was like with you, and usually you have a ton of readers, it's it is kind of funny. I do think it sort of helped though, like to have that that moment of like, how are you going to handle this? Because like, as you know, I did events for years and years. Um, at third place books, which is a local, local bookshop. And it's always interesting to me to see not just how authors handle big events, but also how they handle when like one or two people show up or no people show up mm -hmm. because it ha it's going to happen. It happens to everybody. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Like there are so many factors and so many things that can lead into it. And so you can either be nice or you can get really upset. And I think, um, what I remember too is like 
the the books the bookstore kept apologizing to us for like I mean they can't make people come in. It oh, was yeah. like, it was so nice outside. And both both you and I were like, hey, this is fine. We'll see books for you. I think you had um fortune cookies with you because that was your Oh probably your back when Cinder just came out. I traveled with fortune cookies everywhere. <laughs> um yeah we both signed books. We chatted with them. We told them that you know we would ha- be happy to come back anytime. And I think that was a nice blueprint for me to go and hey when this happens this is how you act you mm-hmm. store, you sign stock you chat with them because end of the day even when you go after you've gone home that bookstore staff is going to remember if you were nice to them and if you chatted with and told them about your book and did all these things that were really positive and they'll talk about that and I've as a bookseller I've sold books based on this author is so nice and here's what she talked about and maybe here's the backstory of that book she told me about and it does yeah. it does form a connection with a reader even if that reader isn't there at the event and so yeah but again it was, it was really funny to be like well that's the one time no one showed up <laughs> one time but it was such a I mean to me it's it has gone down in history as one of my favorite events because I got something so wonderful out of it I met you I discovered your books um now of course you're one of my best writing friends uh so uh I, I just think it's funny to think you know, because I, I know aspiring writers, especially and you know, new debut authors, it is one of the biggest fears that you will go to a book signing and nobody will show up. And you're right. It does happen. It absolutely happens. But exactly what you're saying there, there are good ways to handle it and bad ways to handle it. And really wonderful things can come out of it. Yeah. And I think people don't realize because when, when you first are approaching these things you think about an event as a single blip and then it's done you don't think about how how it affects other things with it's more about forming a relationship with that bookstore and with booksellers because booksellers tend to be fairly career i mean they stay in they, they transfer to different bookstores but they kind of stay in the business and they talk they share they share information and so what what can be a one time no big deal to you has further impact and you don't know what that's going to be. Sometimes it means you meet great booksellers. Sometimes it means you make other good writing friends like we happen to do, which was fantastic. But other times, um, one of our other friends that writes middle grade, she had a, one of those events where it was a a mother daughter book group and one mother daughter showed up and she's like, well, it's fine. And she sat down and she chatted with them and she chatted with the bookseller and she had a good time and didn't really think anything about it. And then she went home. And, um, but because of that event, the bookseller read the book. And then when a teacher came in looking for something for Oregon Battle of the Books, they're like, oh, I read this great one, um, you know, and handed it over. And so it ended up being an Oregon Battle of the Book based on that one event. And you just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen from that, again, that one-time interaction. And so, that, like, I ended up writing an article for Tor.com about it, like, one on how to handle events for new authors, but also how to handle no-show events. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just going to happen. And I think one bonus of working on the event side of things is you see authors that you love that have, like, this huge, long-time following have an event with, like, 20 people. Uh-huh. And then you see like we had, we had Susan Cooper come to the bookstore. And when I was a kid, like I loved Susan Cooper. Yeah. All of her books. And there were like 30 people there. And I was like, this is Susan Cooper. But then we had like an Instagram dog the next week who <laughs> is a dog. And the dog sold out. There was hundreds <gasps> of people to see the dog. Uh, so you, you learn, I think, quickly 
how much that stuff isn't always reflective of how good the book is, you know, what kind of a writer you are or, mm-hmm. you know, or what your career is going to do. Yeah. There are so many factors. Yeah. And that's so interesting because you really have a very interesting perspective having been a bookseller and an event coordinator for so long. And so you really have seen both sides and I'm sure I don't doubt that you have seen the wide spectrum of, um, you know, authors and how they do handle good events versus not so great events. Um, does that like when you are going on and doing a book signing or going on book tour, are you thinking about like, okay, I want to model this author. I don't want to be this author. Well, a hundred percent. Like I think one of the best things that happened to me, I think, um, when the second book come out, came out was being sent on tour um, with you and other Fierce Reads authors because like, you were very good at summarizing your books and talking up your books, whereas I'm really not great at that. It's never been, I'm, I'm awesome at talking about other people's books, but when it gets to my own, I'm like, I already know everything, everything about them and I'm bored. And so, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a good way to pitch your books. And so watching you guys handle things so professionally and, and um, do and be so, I think, good at talking to readers and fans and connecting a huge impact. But also, again, from the event side, seeing authors that were awful, I mean, and knowing, I know all the things that can go wrong on the way to an event, like all the little blips and things, books not showing up, you know, and that's not always the bookstore's fault and all these things that can happen. And so when it does, I don't yell at the staff. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I want to do. If I need to talk later, I will, I'll talk to my publicist or somebody like, hey, I need to have a chat with the bookstore about, you know, working on this thing. But I'm never going to publicly yell at anybody because I've had authors yell at me over things that had nothing to do with me. And all it, all it did was mean that I will never talk their book up. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to badmouth them. I'm not going to name names. But it's one of those things where it's like, wow, you killed any possible joy I reading your book because you can't it's hard to separate the writer like the creator from the book right um, and yeah it, it wasn't a lot we most authors were pretty well behaved but we had a handful where you know it's like hey they can't come back here anymore hey you know they they harassed our staff they yelled at our staff they a few really terrible ones you know might have tried to like hug our hug or grab our staff inappropriately i mean mm. it's that stuff happens um and so I think it really did mold a lot of the ways um, that I try to approach events and also, you know, talking to readers. Cause I've seen, God, I had a, had a really early, had a really early event at like American library association for Hold Me closer necromancer where I was signing audiobooks for um, librarians. And I don't know about you, but this is one of those things where me getting to sit down and talk to librarians about a book I wrote is kind of, you know, dream list thing where <laughs> it's like you, 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 you writers grow up in libraries and to be able to like go out there and, and talk to librarians and booksellers about a book you wrote is awesome. And so I was, even though it was really early in the morning and you know, I'm not a morning person. It was like a 9am event, I think. Um, you know, I was chatting with them and signing it afterwards the people that were running it thanked me for making eye contact and smiling. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, I know that writers can be a little awkward. You know, we spend a lot of time by ourselves with a laptop. We're not necessarily people persons, but eye contact and smiling, that's kind of, yeah. 
No, you, yeah, you we really went above and beyond there. Yeah, apparently <laughs> some of some some authors don't even look up. Like they don't t- like really talk to people. They don't. And I know I'm sure a lot of it is based on, you know, insecurity and and being nervousness. Sure, but it comes off terribly. And so I do think I do think events and being both sides of things have made me think very consciously about. Uh, and also my own screw ups, things that I've done where I'm like, oh, I regret doing that. And mm-hmm. so you know, I learned from it and try not to do it again. That's yeah. all you can do. Was there ever an author that came to do an event um, at your store that did they do anything that was like over and above, like really memorable? Like, did anyone bring a cake or like to share with the staff or anything that like really stands out to you is like that author was really a delightful so, person? and. So it's funny. Um, a lot of, I mean, a lot, we, we actually got a lot of food because a lot of um, authors will do like, like for a debut book, especially we do like a cake or something and, and inevitably there's stuff left over for the staff. Um, but I think I did events, I don't know, like seven years. And over that time, the things that I've seen, um, there was a live chicken once. It was a rooster. Uh, named Elvis. Yeah, no, you see things at events that there was a rooster named Elvis and I wasn't actually doing events that day. I was up front and I just hear in the bookstore, it was a really quiet Sunday. I just all of a sudden hear like, you know, the and I was like, that sounded real. What is going on? And I walk over and it was, um, I think it was for a vegan cookbook and they brought in a rooster from a local, local um, rooster sanctuary because that'll, um, <clears throat> And yeah, there's just a rooster named Elvis kind of walking around. I've had one author brought in Morris dancers, which if you don't know what a Morris dancer is, Google it. Like it's, it's very much, um, I don't want to say UK thing because it, it happens elsewhere, but it's basically they people wear white and bells and have staffs and they sort of do the dance there's a lot of bells ringing and people banging the staffs and things. And it's not something you would expect in a bookstore. <laughs> um, and we had, we had an event stage. And so we would have, we'd have belly dancers and recitals and who knows what else, but yeah, you really saw a lot. As long as it goes with the book, I'm usually pretty good. It's when they, they do stuff where I'm like, that has nothing to do with what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it can start to feel really gimmicky. But, but, can, the but it definitely is memorable. God, that rooster man. But the the best one, the one I think that I remember the most, we hosted a mystery author, Jacqueline Winspear, a lot. She does like the Maisie Dobbs series, and she is really lovely. She is a lovely person, and she was always great about talking about her research. She would do a lot of things that were kind of around, you know, the Great War, World War One, and things like that. And one time she was talking about research that she did for a book and mentioning this book that she found used that was a basically a woman's book on how to run the household mm, that was mm-hmm. written in like 1920s 1930s running there and she's like it has everything in there from you know order of precedence if the queen comes to call to like how to host your own anarchist meeting like that is a bonkers book and it made an impact I told her the next time she came that I had actually told tons of customers about that and like sold her book based on like that discussion. And she had an extra copy of the book because it's an out of print book. And so she mailed it to me. Oh, 
And it's this huge, crazy book that I have no idea what I'm going to use it for, but it was a really lovely gesture. I mean, she didn't have to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was definitely one of the things that I, a good moment of hosting events. <laughs> you do see, you do see a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now <laughs> let's talk about your books. You also write things. I do. I feel like we're like near the end of this interview already and I haven't <laughs> even gotten to your books, Lish. So you have two existing duologies, um, the Necromancer books and the Firebug books. Uh, why don't you start by telling listeners a bit about them? Even though you know I'm bad at it, I will. Yes, even though you're self-proclaimed horrible at pitching your own books, I'm going to make you do it. Difficult. Um, so the first books, Holding Closer Necromancer and Necromancing the Stone, are Seattle-based and humor-based, but they're um, about a, a boy named Sam who finds out he can raise the dead. And it goes poorly, as it would probably with most of us if we learned we had a superpower. It's very creature-based. I tend to throw a lot of stuff in my books, lots of things. So there's, there is werewolves, there's, there are werebears, because I think it's funny. Um, gnomes i miss the gnomes the gnomes were one of my favorite the gnomes were fantastic i do i miss the gnomes um i didn't own any gnomes before i wrote those books and now i own several because people give them to me (laughs) i love it that's great keep it up um no they're they're interesting books because they were i actually started writing the first sam book It it was based on a really terrible short story i wrote in high school i was in um in that brief period before I dropped out of high school, I was going to alternative school and I was writing it in there. And it was basically about a kid that worked in a fast food place, which is where I worked at the time and um, had to fight all these creatures that were coming to attack him. And it was, again, it was terrible, but later I wrote a slightly better version of that short story, which ended up kind of being chapter one. Mm-hmm. Of the book. Um, I miss those books. I wish I could write more of those books. And again, I don't think I'm summarizing them very well. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're doing okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Are there, I'll just pause you there and ask, because I know you've talked in the past about wanting to do a third Necromancer book. Do you think it'll ever happen? Because I would also love for there to be more Sam. I want to. I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's possible that, because I, I think, you know, I've moved publishers. It's possible mm-hmm. that I will have to do the Sam book myself, which is fine. I don't, you know, I don't mind doing that. A lot of it's coming up with, you know, trying to figure out if I'm going to have to like self-publish it or, or put it out traditionally. Um, and, and indie publishing, you know, it's just, it's a lot of work. You're doing a lot yeah. of jobs that aren't writing, but no, I have, I have a vague plot for it. I have a title. So it's definitely something that I, I'm still thinking about. Um, and I did put out a couple of short stories called Freaks and Other Fanny. There's like a Sam story and a Ramon story. And I, I wrote some other short stuff about them on like Patreon, but definitely planning on doing, doing a third one. You know, we'll see when, yeah. and if that happens. And a lot of it too, kind of depends on how the next book goes. Mm-hmm. Or the people like curses or not. But yeah. I miss Sam. I miss that world. And I don't like where the second book left things. Like that was never my plan of where things were going to stop. And so um, I feel really bad. I feel like I've, I feel like I did something terrible to readers. <laughs> no, even though it was not my intention, folks. Yeah. Well, I, I'm optimistic that someday we'll get to read the third Sam book. What is it? What would the title be? Can you tell us? 
The title would be um, Big Trouble Little Necromancer. Aw. And so um, I would hope that we would get a little bit of a cameo from some of the characters from Firebug because Firebug is set in the same world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, as you well know, um, I, I don't really outline very well. And so a lot of books, I kind of have a vague idea of what I'm doing going in. And sometimes things change as mm-hmm. I'm writing. So even though my plan is to have Ava from Firebug show up, who knows if she actually will. Yeah. But, oh, I should summarize those books because I didn't do that. I know. Yeah. Now tell us about Firebug and Ava. Uh, Firebug is about, is about Ava, who is a, um, basically a pyromancer. She can start fires with her mind and she has been bullied into working for a mob style family that's run by a vampire Venus. Again, they're humor based books, but basically her, her best friends, Locke and Ezra, um, fighting crime essentially, except they're on the side of crime. So I guess they're fighting other crime, but also, perpetuating i don't know i haven't thought that far about it but um they're set in a small town in maine same world as sam same sort of found family that's a big theme i think in my books very snarky but uh, lots of things explode lots of things and one of the big like subplots that i remember a lot from the book i guess it's not really subplot it's pretty much the main plot of the book is this idea of ava and Locke and ezra they're like being forced to work for like a mob essentially, but a, a mob of like horrible magical creatures. I mean, they're all basically doing it to sort of protect their friends and family. I mean, um, a lot of it is Ava trying to figure her way out of it, but also trying to figure out, and I think this is more of the second book, her trying to, trying to see her powers as, as things that is not just destructive. I mean, mm-hmm. fire can do positive things as well. But it's hard when you have something and a big grown-up basically being told that, you know, you're a monster, getting past that image of yourself, which mm-hmm. I think I think even most of us who can't actually start fires of their mind have that problem growing up. You know, you get told negative things about yourself and trying to, as you become an adult, figure out what, you know, what is sort of that background noise that you need to let go and what is stuff that you actually want to see in yourself. And so... I think there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's interesting because hearing you talk about the books and when you kind of hear these surface descriptions, I mean, there are very serious themes. There's a lot of, um, you know, really not, I guess some dark stuff, um, but you know, the characters, they're trying to deal with and overcome a lot of things. And yet they are really funny books like you just you're great with comedy which is one of the things that i i love most about your writing um because the things you come up with are so quirky and so weird <laughs> um, but yet work so well within the story world that you've created what are your thoughts on comedy like are you trying to make your books funny or is it just part of your natural writing voice i think i think both those things are true so um when I went to my undergraduate was a, a very um, I went to Seattle University, which is like a Jesuit university, and they're they're very academic. And I would turn in papers, and I would get in trouble because I am terrible at academic tone because academic tone is serious. And they're like, you need to stop making jokes in your papers. I'm like, but I'm not making jokes. They're like, yes, you are. And they point things out. I'm like, that's but that's just how I talk. And so I think there's a little bit inherent. Like I don't think. 
I think I could write something. I mean, maybe I could try to write something serious, but I'm not very good at it. But I do, I do bank heavily on humor. And I think a lot of that is humor is an excellent coping mechanism. One of my friends the other day posted like a, something from Twitter that said, you know, <laughs> did you have a good childhood or are you funny? And I, I was like, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, it is. And so for the kids, the, or the, the teens that I'm writing about who are dealing with awful things, I mean, there's a lot that Sam's dealing with. There's a lot that Ava's dealing with. You have basically two options. You can get really angsty and sad, which is fine. Um, or you, or you can laugh at it and try to, and try to take some of the power back. Cause I think that's what laughing at terrible things does. It returns some of the power back to you. And for me, that's just, that's how my family copes with stuff. Like the worst things are the funnier we get. Um, and it's something I actively studied. I was that weirdo teenager that used to go home and play like comedy records or watch stand up on, um, comedy central and, and memorize stand up. Hmm. because that's kind of nerd I am. Um, because, and I've, I just real, realized this really recently, but most stand-up, it's also them telling a story. It's them kind of going through the rhythms of story. It's just in joke form. And so you learn a lot about how dialogue sounds listening to stand-up, because it's something that they've gone over and over and over, just like with regular writing. And so the similarities are really, are really close. And so hmm. I think unconsciously, I studied a lot of that. Like my brothers and I used to memorize movies because again, we're nerds. So we still do it. It's my family hates it when we all get together. Cause if my brothers and I are in a room, half of the things we say are just dialogue from movies. Um, and it drives, it drives some crazy. Like my mom, my mom gets mad. Um, <laughs> yeah, we like, we, mem- we memorize it. And so I think, um, but it gave me, I think a good ear for, for dialogue and, um, it does mean that I have a really hard time writing things that are serious, but humor is something that I've worked on and consciously tried to cultivate. Mm-hmm. There's not, there's not a lot of funny, um, there's not a lot of funny in young adult, and I get it on one hand because it's a really hard time. You know, a lot of kids like they don't, they don't want to read things that are necessarily funny, but at the same time, there's a huge contingent of them that get tired of getting all the sad. They get a lot of sad, and the the books you're forced to read for school curriculum during that period of time are just depressing. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to add. <laughs> like, yeah, I want to have like, here, here's some funny things you can read when you're done reading 1984 and <laughs> you know, all, all the things that are good, they're good literature and all, but um, depressing. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. You have a new book coming out next year and 2021 called Curses. And I have, of course, been with you every step of the way while you've been writing this book, and I still haven't gotten to read it, but I'm super, super excited for it. Tell us about Curses. Curses, the book that tried to kill me. Um, <laughs> well, it's not it. too late, Lish. It can still succeed. <laughs> kill me. I'm trying to think. I've been working on this book. I think you've put out five books since I've been working on this book. It's insane. <laughs> It's set in a different in, in a world. It's set in a very different world than ours, um, where there are humans, but there's also like mages and um, people that are fairy born. So people have some fairy blood in them. And then there's like fairy godparents who can curse and, and grant gifts. Only if you've read a lot of fairy tales, which I know you have, you know that fairy gifts are usually they're terrible. Like they're not they're not great. They're not really well thought through. 
like like the fairy tale with uh what's the girl that you know when she speaks flowers and gems come from mm, her mm-hmm. there are so many problems with that she's actually one of the i made her one of the characters i'm like that's a terrible gift i you know i get what you're going for there fairy godmother but that's awful um <laughs> and so this one it's based around sort of a gender inverted beauty and the beast so Merit is our main character. She's our beast character. And she has been cursed sort of through actions that her mother, her her mother was trying to marry her off and she was not into it. And she ended up getting cursed as a beast. Um, And then our, our male lead Tevin is the beauty character and he has been gifted um, with charm. He's very charming um, and can sort of talk people into doing anything that he wants. And it helps that he's very, very pretty, but um it's been really interesting. It's been fun to kind of play with the gifts and curses aspect and do kind of a funny, a funny fantasy story with all different kinds of weird. Because fairy tales are deeply weird. I mean, we. I know my brain is. All, I know my brain is also strange, but there's so much there in like the old Grimm's fairy tales and um, some of the old versions of like Little Red Riding Hood and things like that that it leaves you pretty open for all kinds of weirdness if you're doing fairy tale tropes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, the book is basically Merit is now you know, coming into adulthood and she's either going to become a beast forever, and which she would kind of be down with, except that becoming a beast means she's going to lose her mind and she's, she's very smart um, and very pragmatic person and she likes her brain. So... She wants to keep that Um, or she can get married to someone of her mother's choosing. And that's not great. So um, that's, so she, the beginning of the book is her trying to figure out a way kind of around that or or basically coping with it. um, And at the same time, getting Tevin, the male lead out of jail to help her because he's been incarcerated at that point. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. There's so many things I really love about it. Some of the characters, I'm really excited for people to meet the characters because I've been working on it for a million years. <laughs> you must know them so well. I think so, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I remember way back when you first started talking about this book and just that kind of the, the, the heart of the idea, the gender inverted Beauty and the Beast. Um, I just love that. Um, and then the more that I've heard about it over the years and how you're bringing in these other fairy tale inspired characters who have different curses and, you know, quote unquote gifts that maybe aren't always gifts. Um, I just think it's so clever. And, and I know that it will be hysterical because I know you and your books and your writing. Um, What was it about beauty and the beast that kind of felt like it was going to lend itself to the, the kind of being the main uh, soul of this story? I, you know, honestly, I think a lot of it was just based on the fact that Beauty and the Beast is one of my favorite fairy tales, even though it's so problematic. It's um, so problematic. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, it's basically like this girl gets traded for something her father did, which, you know, doesn't seem particularly fair. And in this, the story, besides the creepy factor of the Beast keeps asking her to marry him, he's just a nice guy. He's just hideous. He looks, you know, monstrous and everything. And so, um, I don't know. I've, I've always been drawn to characters that I feel like didn't get a 
didn't get a good shake. And so with Beauty and the Beast, I think these are two characters that you're never really told in the original why the Beast is beastly. Like they, they don't give you anything. There's more if you look into sort of the um, east of the sun, west of the moon variations. You get a little bit more there, but you're not really told like why that character is a beast because he's again, except for the creepy marry me, marry me thing over and over again. <laughs> He's like a decent guy. Uh, he's, got a, <laughs> a library, he's, got, he's got servants. That's great. Um, whereas Beauty's family is awful on every level. Um, and so there's a lot there. There's a lot of interesting things. And then when you flip it, that to me is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? Because Beauty is also one of those gifts that everyone kind of seems to want, not realizing that, you know, there's a there's a dark edge to that too. There's a lot of... A lot of um, a lot of doors get open to you if you're a beautiful person, but a lot of them get shut too. And so, I think you know that that sort of thing interested me. Sort of played in well with um, kind of setting up this world that where this is common. You know, I have I have I have a troll prince in there. I have what else do I have in there? The girl that gets her hand stuck to the goose, the golden <laughs> goose. Um, <laughs> Again, fairy tales are weird. There's so much in there. There's um, a character that he mostly got cut out, but um, I think he'll be more in the second one with um, a groom, Shem, who has a toad on his head. And if he doesn't keep it fed, it will eat his face, which mm. is it's in there. It's a, it's a fairy tale. Um, but what I did was made it so Shem is actually really loves the toad. Like they're, they're friends and he gets worried about it. <laughs> if, if, at one point, the toad goes missing, and he's like, "But what? You know, what, there's no one to feed him. Who's going to take care of him?" Oh you know, no! Um, and I've always think I think you know this. Well, I like playing with that expectation of, "Here's how you think it's going to go, but what happens if we flip it?" You know, the mm-hmm. character that looks like a monster but is not a monster, or the character that looks really normal but is an awful person. And so, yeah. I've always sort of liked that playing with image because I think as people you know, we, we do have that characteristic to judge something based on how it looks, which evolutionarily speaking makes sense. You know, you have to look at something really quickly and decide, is this a danger to me? Is this a friendly thing? You know, whatever. But as intelligent people, we also have to kind of look beyond that initial impression. And so, um, I like, I like twisting around with that. Mm -hmm. And so I I think this story gave me a lot of fodder, but again, I, some of it might boil down to the fact that in the Disney Beauty and the Beast, that huge library that we all wanted. <laughs> right. I wanted Does, I do we want. have a library in your book? Yes, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a big library. Yeah. Well, good, good. I, yeah, these days, Beauty and the Beast and the big library just so go hand in hand. Um, and I, I like how you mentioned like this idea that beauty can also be a curse um, because I feel like for beautiful people, it's so easy to kind of have your self-worth get wrapped up in that um, and to kind of question and doubt what else you might be bringing to the table. Um, so I, 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 I also like that theme in fiction. Well, I think too, that there are a lot of times where, uh, you know, for, for women, whether you're listened to or not, like if it's a really, if it's a, if it's someone that looks sort of that traditionally pretty, you know, all this stuff, people might not listen to them as much in a sense. Cause like, Oh, you're pretty, but we expect you to be smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you can't be both somehow, which is bonkers. Like they're not connected in any way. Right. Um, and so 
yeah, I think, um, I think as with anything, there's always, there's downsides to every, every plus that you get. And there, yeah, a lot of things do happen. Like there've been studies, like if you're, if you're a pretty person, like you get a lot of things your way, but at the same time, yeah, it can definitely be, I think, a negative. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm super excited to read it. I'm, I'm glad that it's finally coming out. Um, it's not available for pre-order yet, is it? Not yet, but I think it will be soonish. Maybe, as you know, I'm kind of a big nerd for indie bookstores, so hopefully people will will think of them when they're ordering. But and or, you know, I don't know when they put up library holds, but again, that was one of those big things for me. Like when my first book came out, I would sometimes go on the library website and see how many people had it on hold. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it was so wonderful to me because I was like. I want to read it and I just I love libraries so much and so yeah we were yeah, no, that's a to... special thing for sure oh, bucket list yeah okay we are gonna wrap this up with the happy writer lightning round okay first question what book makes you happy uh, that's a terrible question <laughs> <laughs> no seriously I have, I have a really hard time with that like favorite book type question um what book makes me happy See, this isn't lightning for me. No, your first thing that comes to mind. Books, you know, uh, a book series that'd be happy is um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld. That's always, mm. always, always, always make me laugh. Um, um, especially his Tiffany Aching books, like the ones with the teen witch, essentially. Um, those books, they're funny. They're funny and they're smart. What do you do to celebrate an accomplishment? You know, I'm really, I'm really bad at this. T- um, I think I just feel really uncomfortable celebrating. I think something I, t- I have a tendency to downplay accomplishments, which is why, why would I do that? Um, and so that's something I've been working on, honestly, trying to celebrate each little thing that happens with the book stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't have a good answer. My, yeah. my answer is I'm hoping with the next book, I will come up with things that are, because I think you're really good at celebrating stuff when it happens to you. Um, and I need to be better at that because honestly we spend so much time, I think in this business kind of getting bombarded with the negative aspects that like, why would I not celebrate when the good things happen? Like that just seems a, a weird and unbalanced way to go about things. And so right. maybe, maybe I'll ask you when the, when the book comes out, like, what can I do, Marissa? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm a proponent for celebrating all the things and not even just like the big things. Like, yes, when a book, comes out in launch day that I should absolutely be celebrated. But I celebrate like every time I finish a draft and every time I see my cover art and like, I really try to not make a big deal, but like find some small way to be like, okay, this is an accomplishment. Let's take a moment to recognize that. Um, and I think it's smart because we have, we have a tendency, especially once you get sort of used to it, like, you know, fast, fast that kind of first book glow. Um, you're sort of like, well, maybe, maybe this shouldn't be a big deal now, but it is every time you accomplish a draft or anything like that, it should be a big deal. And it's something that I tell other writers they should be doing. And so it seems kind of bizarre that I don't do it myself. Yeah. But, uh, so I know you told me um, before we started this recording that you just got um, new edits from your editor um, for this yeah. next round of revisions. Um, so let's decide now, what are you going to do to celebrate when you turned in, turn in this round of revisions? <sighs> No, because like lockdown. So what can I do? I'm I'm very good at taking a day off and reading. Yeah, that's a good one. 
pile of books, but maybe, maybe I will decide on a signature cocktail and make myself a cocktail because I have not had one since I've been in quarantine. That is a perfect plan. Make yourself a signature cocktail and read a book for a while. That sounds good. I'm going to do it. Excellent. (laughs) Glad we got that solved. Uh, What advice would you give to help someone become a happier writer? Happy. See, that's that's the thing too, is I think, um, I think it's really easy when you're writing to forget that you originally you did this because you, you like it mm-hmm. and, and remembering that it is in a way play you're, you're playing. That's not um, saying anything negative about writing. I think art is important, but a lot of that comes about through playing. And I think that we sort of minimalize how important that is for humans, but play is very important. Um, and so just trying to remind yourself why you got into this to begin with, like what brought you to it. Um, not taking yourself seriously in some respects is helpful. You know, a lot of, a lot of writers I know stress themselves out by setting goals. And then when they don't meet them, even though the goals might have nothing to, to do with them in the sense that like, I'll be published by the time I'm 25. And it's like, well, that's it's not just on you. That's on a business and things that change and the factors you can't control. So I think being gentle with yourself is really good. Um, and the, Best advice I actually got, which sort of only tangentially has to do with writing, but I had a writing professor um, before my first book came out, was talking to me about um, how a lot of writers think that getting published will solve their problems. And she's like, if you have anything else in your life that's um, hard for you to deal with, that's upsetting or whatever, um, do not think that publishing is going to that. She's like, you know, go find a counselor, go figure out ways to process she said, but the only thing getting published will solve is the problem of not being published. <laughs> Everything else, the stress of it, because there are some stressful things about publishing, um, even good stress, uh, exacerbates any problem you have before. So if you're thinking it's going to make you happy on its own, um, I mean, it, it is and it isn't. And so I thought that was really great because it made me sort of take a hard look at you know what issues I was having and kind of and, and kind of be prepared for that. Cause I think a lot of friends that I had thought that publishing would then make them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it, it, when it wasn't magic because it's like any other business has goods and bads, um, it was really upsetting for them. And so I think sort of keeping that in mind and, you know, trying to approach it from a point of view of this is, this is fun. Yeah, it's work, but it is also fun. And keeping that in mind, even in the days where the book is trying to kill you. <laughs> no, that's, that's excellent advice. Um, I know so many aspiring writers and for me too, when I was aspiring, you know, you kind of see getting published as the end point. Uh, it, it is the goal. Um, but it's, it's really not, you know, it's, it's, if anything, it's just another starting line. Uh, lastly, where can people find you? Right now at my house. Don't find me <laughs> in my house. <laughs> yeah. Um, virtually, not- virtually, where can people find you? <laughs> people find me. Oh, that was a weird invitation to the internet. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter and Instagram. I tend to prefer Instagram. I feel like it's, it's, a more cheerful place. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to see pictures of my dog, definitely go to Instagram. Um, but I'm, I'm on there. I'm on, I have a Patreon page. Um, so if there's people that are listening that really liked 
former books, that's a good place to go because I don't take things down after I'm done with them. And so there's all kinds of short stories with Sam and Ava and newer stuff I've been working on. Cause I usually have a novel that I'm writing on there separate from what I'm working on in professional life. So I, I, I have to juggle projects. I don't know if you have to do this, but I can't work on one thing at a time. I have like one main project and then I usually have little things that I'm kind of working on as well. Cause I, I'm more productive that way. The one I'm doing on Patreon right now is actually, I did a short story on tour.com a couple of years ago called heads will roll. That's about a Valkyrie, a half Valkyrie named Lena and her battle unicorn, Steve. Um, and it's free on the website. You can read it, but I really liked those characters and I wanted to do more with them. And so the novel I'm working on with that is following Lena and Steve. Um, that's the one I'm on Patreon right now. I don't have a title for it yet, which is weird. Usually I have a title first, but. So people t- go check out Alicia's uh, Patreon page for so many extra goodies. Thank you for joining me today, Lish. It was so great to hear your voice. Good to hear you too. I miss I miss getting to go right with you, and I look forward to the day that we can actually you know leave our houses and see people in real life. Me too, very much. Readers definitely check out Lish's books, uh, the Necromancer and Firebug series, and keep your eye out for Curses coming next year. Uh, and of course, more than ever, if you can support your local independent bookstore, we always encourage you to do so. Please subscribe to this podcast so you will always be in the know about new episodes. You can find me on Instagram at Marissa Meyer Author and at Happy Writer Podcast. Until next time, stay healthy and cozy out there in your bunkers. And whatever life throws at you today, I do hope that now you're feeling a little bit happier.